0: Welcome back, and thank you for joining me again this week for another episode of The Devil Came Knocking. This week, I have an interview with Karen Howe from the prison in Henning, Tennessee, where she is serving her life sentence. In addition to another interview with Douglas Cavanaugh, who spent some time with Karen's father before he passed away, and will share what he told him about the case. I've had several conversations over the last couple of weeks with Karen, And as we go through this episode, I will elaborate on parts of our interviews with information she has shared with me over our many conversations, both on the phone and in emails. I know many of you have been looking forward to this episode, so I will not make you wait anymore. Here is my interview with Karen. Okay, everybody on the phone today, I have Karen. Karen. Karen, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us and answer a few questions. Um, if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and get started. Okay. Um, can you tell me what you recall about what happened that night at Payne Hollow? Um,
1: when we got there or right
0: before? When you, After you arrived at Payne Hollow, what happened?
1: It's a little fuzzy, but I remember bits and pieces. Um, Joe had said, Everybody out, and we got out of the van. And I think, I'm pretty sure Crystal and Dean, they had stayed in the car. And I don't know, Jason said something. And I said, Well, let's just let them get their stuff and go. Joe did tell them that there was a house nearby that they could go to when we left. And Jason, like I said, I don't remember everything that was said, but he started getting really manic. And saying, well, we can't let them go. We can't let him go. Cause they're gonna tell, they're gonna tell on me, blah, blah, blah. And Madara kept telling him, we're not going to be able to identify you. We won't tell on you. And Jason said, no, you're going to tell on me. I can't go back. I can't go back. And I didn't know at that very moment that he was on probation until after the arrest. Um, I remember Natasha arguing with him and saying, well, let the kids go, just let the kids go. And I remember Vidar, he said something to, he said something to, if we let the kids go, they'll be dead anyway. Like I said, it's just bits and pieces that are just fuzzy to me. And I remember Tasha going back and forth. And I remember Jason
0: of the door. They just kept going back and forth. And then I heard gunshots, and it was. It was. Just... Yeah. I understand. Um, and I'm sorry to get you upset, but do you remember, no. uh, in your uh, opinion, how many shooters were there that night? And that was Jason Bryant? Jason Bryant? Karen mentioned something in the first part of our interview that I believe is extremely important in the case. As it is now known that marijuana use has been shown to worsen the course of illness in people with mental health issues. Based on his reported behavior both before and after the murders, his paranoia about being reported because he was on probation, and the groups admitted marijuana use that day, I believe that could have been a major factor in what happened. I also thought it was interesting that the big bag of weed, that, as Karen called it, they had never showed up in the evidence on the case. I guess I'm going to have to start calling Arizona to find out what happened to the weed. Okay, Karen, uh, can you tell me a little bit about when you guys left Pain Hollow? I know there's some dispute over Joe running over the bodies. Um, can you tell me whether you think this was done purposefully or not? Yes, uh, I've always
1: believed so. Um, yeah, 25 years ago when I was questioned on the stand about that, I was asked if I thought Joseph Rising ran over the victims on purpose. And my response then was, I do think it was done on purpose. And um, although Jason was the only shooter, Joe still did what he did. He initiated the robbery. And I remember Berkeley Bell, at the time i the at one point, claimed that we all pointed the finger at Jason to save each other. But it wasn't the case. I didn't point all the blame on Jason. Joseph Rosner was my boyfriend at the time. And I could have easily said he ran over the victims on accident, but I didn't. I could have never lied to protect him when they, when that, the swerve didn't feel like no accident. I, cl- I think he claimed that it was an accident, but it just
0: couldn't have been. Right. Um, and I questioned okay. Frank uh, Waddell about that um, with the relationship to where the car and the bodies and stuff like that were, too. And um I kinda got a similar response from Frank that there was no point for him to swerve where he swerved at. Yeah, you know
1: you know, if I had went to trial and I had been asked that question on the stand in front of a jury, I pretty much would have been, you know, guaranteed Joseph Rosner a life sentence by not just by what I said, but going against what Joe said, so, you know. Isn't
0: just pointing the finger at one person And I believe you and Crystal both have always testified that Joe run them over on purpose, correct? Yeah. Um, I know Dean says that he's just not sure if it was done purposefully or not was um, the response he got he gave me in our interview. This is a question I asked Dean, Crystal, and Joe, as you have all heard now. They all said Joe ran over the bodies. Natasha, Jason, and even Joe also agree. The only dispute is if this was done intentionally or not. All evidence would indicate it was. So can we just add this up as another lie Bell loves to tell? He always says they always try to put the blame all on Jason. Joe admits to initiating the robbery as well as running over the bodies. If the group was truly just trying to lay all the blame at Jason's feet, why not blame him for everything? The robbery, running over the bodies, and shooting all the victims. According to Barkley Bell, um, you guys all took trophies off of the bodies um, that night. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: It was not any trophies taken. Um, And I think it was sometime while we were on the road. And what I took was Peter's, I think it was his social security card. And there was a locket that I knew that had belonged to Tabitha. And... In my 17-year-old mind at the time, it was like, do you know when someone close to you passes away and you get something from them or you have something from them just to hold just close? It wasn't a trophy. It was... I, I can't even... Describe, like, but it wasn't a trophy. Yeah, um, yeah, I want to emphasize on the Hello Kitty locket that belonged to Tabitha and the car that belonged to Peter. I was in the van, and sometime the next day was when I seen it, and that's when I got it. And, um, it wasn't taken off the body. I I seen it in the van, and, you know, it was something concrete, something existed. And then my 17-year-old brain, at the time, I sentimentalized that and
0: maybe it's because they were babies, I don't know. Can you uh, speak a little bit on why none of you went against Jason after the shootings happened? Why you guys left the scene and why nobody said anything for two days? Scared?
1: I know at the Waffle house when we got there When we got out of the van, I knew that he still had a gun in his the waistline of his pants because he moved up his shirt just a little bit, and I don't know if it was like a thing of I'm still packing, you know, don't do anything stupid, or I don't know, but my heart was racing and I was scared.
0: He was unstable. Um, you brought up just a good point a minute ago, too, I thought. Um, when these crimes happened, did any of you guys have a phone to call with?
1: No.
0: None of us own cell phones. Yet. Okay. Well, Karen, and I think you've... I
1: wholeheartedly believe that one of us would have at least found 911
0: if given the chance. Um... I think that's definitely understandable due to the circumstances of everything that happened. Um, I can imagine the shock that everybody would have been in to begin with. Um, I can't imagine witnessing anything like that. So um, I just wanted to make sure we touched on that a little bit and tried to give everybody um, an explanation from you as well because I know we touched on that with Crystal and Dean both. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and um, can you speak a little bit on the occult rumors to the case? Um, Was there any truth to the satanic rumors?
1: No, not at all. There was no ritual, there was no satanic cult. There was nothing like that. Nothing.
0: Um, from what I can find, um, it seems like that, um, Natasha and you were dabbling a little bit maybe with the Wicca religion. Is that true?
1: I wasn't into the Wiccan religion. Um, Natasha had a witchcraft book.
0: That's why I asked. Yes. I, I didn't, I,
1: I didn't even own a witchcraft book, okay. but I have looked at hers and we, would her, like spooky, like seances or play with the Ouija board. But I would, you know, there was other friends and we would get together and it wasn't an everyday thing. I probably see Natasha like once a month, twice a month. Okay. There was never a cult. We didn't worship Satan. I, I mean, I still went to church with my mom on Sundays, you know. we were just being stupid kids.
0: <laughs> yeah, I understand. Um, and, I think... Know,
1: yeah, and, you know, during the '90s, there were TV shows that I thought were just so cool. You know, Charm and the movie The Craft and different stuff like that that kind of had an influence and sparked my curiosity on The Witch Award and stuff like that. So...
0: Okay, I can understand. That's I think funny. a lot of kids in our generation played with a Ouija board at some point. Um, yeah. After you were brought back to Greene County, um, after you were arrested, do you remember what medicines you were given while in custody? I
1: was put on Xanax.
0: Oh. Um, yeah. Do you remember why? my anxiety. anxiety my anxiety and depression and um, when it come time to sign the plea deal what did your lawyers tell you regarding that plea deal um, they told me
1: that there were several things first of all they said David Leonard said I would have a better chance I getting free someday if I went in front of a judge instead of letting a jury sentence me, but they were all gonna see us as a whole group and look at us as a, just a whole satanic group and not look at me as an individual if I had went to trial. And then he said, and if you don't plead to this, they're gonna put the four adults to death. They're, if we go to trial, they're gonna sentence them to death. And it was, it was just overwhelming and the pressure. And I was thinking, I mean, if I don't sign this, they're going to die. You know, it's just a big burden to bear knowing that.
0: And if I'm not mistaken, you were the last one to sign that deal, correct? Yeah,
1: it was like down to the hour and David Leonard came. And he said, well, what are you going to do? You're the last to sign. And, I mean, I didn't want to sign. Um. And,
0: uh,
1: to my knowledge, you know, my dad, he kept calling and he was, <laughs> he was begging me not to sign it. And, um, uh, he
0: got to argue with David Leonard, and David Leonard hung up on him and said, Karen, hell was no longer your concern. Wow. So. So David Leonard actually hung the phone up on your dad? Yes. Yeah. One other question I had for you, though, regarding around the plea deal that I've heard several times. Um, I was told that you were cut off of your medicine... The Xanax? Yes.
1: Yeah.
0: Right around the same yeah. time that they asked you to sign this plea deal. Is that true as well?
1: Yes. As soon as it came out, they cut me off my Xanax.
0: So they cut you um, off cold turkey from the Xanax? Yes.
1: They said I needed a clear head. Wow. Yes. But, you know, later on I realized it was just a... A ploy because you know they put me on the Xanax because I was an emotional mess. So to take me off, and knowing at the time I had really bad depression issues and whatnot, I just I feel like David Leonard knew what he was doing. You know, and ultimately he, you know, it worked.
0: Yeah, I've seen um, several things around the plea deal and David Leonard in particular. There. That- really bothered me as well. Um, Do you recall um, David Leonard saying something in court about um, the state not fingerprinting the guns?
1: Do I remember?
0: Yes. I
1: think I recall something about David Leonard saying that the DA had it fingerprinted the guns.
0: Okay. Um, We are digging through those tapes right now trying to find that statement, but I've heard that from several individuals. I didn't know if you would remember that specific moment or not.
1: Yes, I do.
0: I have spoken to Karen several times about the occult rumors in this case. She definitely had an interest in witchcraft, as so did Natasha, but this is far from satanic. Dabbling with a Ouija board, doing silly little seances, and reading a witchcraft book hardly makes you a satanist. Um, I also think as far as Karen concerned, is concerned, it was a rebellious thing against her mother. as the, She indicated this to me several times in our conversations. As far as the medicine goes with Karen, it's well documented in her juvenile files up at the courthouse in Greene County about the medication she was receiving. It's a persistent story through her family that her medicine was cut off cold turkey right before the plea deal was signed. And she did sign one of the papers wrong, which you will hear about later. Um, we talked a little bit about um, some of the stuff that went on around the investigation in this case and um, you had some information I think would be really important to share with everybody um, when Berkeley Bell and his investigators went to Kentucky to try to get witnesses as to your alls behavior and actions in Kentucky can you talk a little bit about what they said happened um, my best friend at
1: the time at home um, later, later on, I learned that um, when he went to, when Berkeley Bell went to interview her, that he threatened to show her pictures of the dead children. She didn't cooperate, and you know, I, I'm not sure word by word, but I know that's what it, that's what she said. You know, he threatened to put the pictures down,
0: and that's something that she doesn't want to see. You know. Yeah, I don't think many people do. Um, do you know why he was making the threats to show her the pictures?
1: Um, to my knowledge, it's just me and her wrote a couple of times, and maybe it was just to have her hand over my letters. I'm not 100% sure on it,
0: but... Okay. Since you have been in prison, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what you've done... Um, since being there? I'm Well, I'm sorry. It's loud. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I said, can you just talk to us a little bit about what you've accomplished since being in prison? Um,
1: I've taken numerous classes. Um, I got into the, uh, it's called PAWS program when I was in Memphis. Tennessee prison and uh, it was great. It taught me a lot. It taught me responsibility and you know I, ne- I never had any of that. I, I didn't know I didn't know what responsible was until I had to take care of a baby puppy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've done that for eight years and decided I had a passion for it and um, got my done a correspondence course through Penn Foster to yeah a dog trainer instructor. Um I have went through cosmetology, got my cosmetology license. Love to do hair color and cutting. Um we had a transition prison so I had to come down here to Henning, Tennessee when Memphis shut down for the women. And here I'm just I haven't got into any educational classes. I've taken a few, um, self-help classes, but I've done, um, it's called Inmate Observer for a while. Um, sometimes when, um, women go on suicide watch or mental health seclusion, they would have a couple of us. We went through training to, um, observe them, make their rounds and take notes every 15 minutes and do checkups to make sure they're not hurting themselves.
0: Okay, that's awesome. Um, is there anything that you would like to say to the public?
1: Um, I would really like to tell the public that I'm sorry. And um, I would really like the chance someday to, you know, show people that no matter the circumstances we place ourselves in, You'll have the ability to become better people and you know and ultimately sometimes make differences in other people's lives and hopefully uh, I never give up hope someday I'm going to walk out of here and I do have plans on hopefully working with other juveniles and kind of being you know lead by example of came from and you know the mistakes and
0: decisions that i've made and hopefully make a difference in another kid's life that's going down the wrong path you know well karen um if there's nothing else that you have to say that's all the questions i have for you today i just want to thank you for your time and thank you for taking the time to speak with me
1: thank you thank you
0: Okay, everybody, I've got Douglas Cavanaugh on the phone again today. He's agreed to join us to tell us some of the stuff that happened around Karen's case that he's aware of. Uh, Doug, how you doing today? All right, good, thank you. Um, Doug, you got to speak at one time with uh, Karen's father. Uh, can you just share with us what he told you?
2: Yeah, Joe How. Um, at the time, he was he was uh, dying of the cancer that would eventually take his life, but he was still very lucid when I was talking to him, and still, you know, up and about. So uh, I had no reason to doubt his word, and it's what he's been saying apparently since since it happened. Uh, he he told me that uh, at one point, Karen's attorney, David Leonard, hung up on him. Actually, hung up on him and said, "Karen's not your problem anymore." I mean, just completely disregarded him and just just everything. It was just awful, and he was outraged about the whole thing.
0: And this hang-up happened during the plea deal bargaining, basically, right?
2: Yeah, which he was begging her not to take. He was saying, do not take that plea bargain. And she was crying and just, you know, that whole scene, she was crying and just didn't know what to do. She was confused, young girl um joe was telling her not to uh, her brother was telling her not to um so yeah so they were they were trying to support her but then uh she got disconnected from that support so to speak you know
0: and i believe we were told a similar story by another family member of hers um do you remember what um her brother said about when he was visiting her
2: Oh, and, and Joe told me about that as well. Her dad told me too. Um, yeah, she was just out of it completely. I mean, she passed out, like <laughs> fell asleep. Her head conked against the glass um, as they were as they were talking to her. She was falling asleep. They had her so drugged up, so medicated
0: up. That just blows my mind that um, they did that and then took the Xanax away two days before... She signed that cold turkey like that.
2: Yeah, and one of the documents she signed, she only used one L. while spelling her last name, that's how out of it she was, one l yep. was with two L's, she's still with one L, that's how completely out of it she was.
0: I believe um, I've seen that one of those documents, or we've talked about that before, I remember hearing that.
2: Yeah, there's so much about this case that blows me away, but yeah, the way Karen was handled, a minor... Um, the the, 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 the the attorney she was assigned who was basically a greenhorn in these sorts of cases i mean there's just so much about what happened to karen that just is just wretched and and usually would be thrown out you, you couldn't get away with that in other places but right. for some reason they were allowed to get away with a lot of things that are well shall we say questionable
0: <laughs> um well one of the big questionable things i know that we've kind of uncovered through all this um is when they were investigating, first starting to investigate these crimes, um, Barkley Bell and his investigators went to Kentucky and were shoving crime scene photos into these teenagers' faces up there in Kentucky. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, I heard about that, and uh, I talked to a couple of the people friends of uh, some of the defendants and they they concur yeah they were threatening to do it um i heard they actually did it in a few cases it's yeah i've spoken to them myself and they're like yeah they came up here guns ablazing, so to speak just threatening you know you better get out and basically you better get sink or swim you better get on board with us or else
0: uh yeah i've actually talked to one of crystal sturgill's close friends growing up and she said that when barkley bell questioned her that it was in a motel room there in Pikeville and he shoved the crime scene photos in her face and told her that if she didn't say what he wanted her to say, that she was just as guilty as the six that were in Tennessee in prison.
2: Isn't that illegal? You can't do that. I mean, I don't know the law over there, but I don't believe you can do that.
0: (laughs) To me, it's, it's highly unethical at the least the least. Um, I'm like you. I don't know what the law is pertaining to a lot of that stuff, but I know the district attorney now is putting up a big fight for me to not even see the crime scene photos. And I'm 36 years old, um, but they apparently had no problem shoving them in a 17 year old girl's face 25 years ago.
2: And in a hotel room. I just, that doesn't smell right to me.
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely problem problematic at the very least
2: that's why i enjoy your podcast a lot it's really uncovering a lot of the uh questionable ethically and morally questionable things and some of them seem to be kind of illegal so hopefully it's nice that the truth is coming to light after all these years a lot of people are fighting against it and they're they're not liking it but the truth won't be hidden for long that's for sure It, it does come out
0: that it most certainly does um they tried to bury a lot of this stuff I think thinking nobody would ever take the time to look and you know hindsight being 2020 I guess you know it would have been hard to predict the internet and podcasts and all this stuff coming along like it did but it it doesn't look good for them right now I'm looking
2: forward to seeing what happens that's for sure I mean I don't I don't I don't Revel in people's downfall, but uh, you know, it's it's kind of like the the person that drives ninety miles per hour, you know, ninety miles per hour through a narrow you know country road on a rainy night. You know, you don't hope that they die, but they kind of got it coming to them because they're doing something incredibly reckless and incredibly stupid. Uh, if you bury the truth, it's going to come up and bite you in the rear end sooner or later. So, and a lot of this truth was buried, so, so it's, it's nice that it's buried. coming to light.
0: Um, is there anything else that you would like to add on Karen's behalf today or?
2: Oh, there's so much I'd like to add. I don't think we have the time. (laughs) (laughs) Just that, uh, that plea deal was not a deal. It was a threat. It was basically putting a gun to her friends' heads and saying, you sign this or we're going to kill your friends. There was no deal in it for Karen Howell. And to be fair, there was no deal in it for Jason Bryant. It was basically just saying, sign this or we kill these people. So what was the deal for Karen? It wasn't a deal. It was a threat. You can't threaten people into signing things. You can't do that in any sane courtroom that I'm aware of in this country. You cannot threaten people into signing things. You threatened to kill Karen's friends, the ones she knew didn't do anything, that weren't killers, that weren't murders. Jason Bryant did it. All the evidence points that way. And yet they're threatening to kill these other people if she doesn't sign. That doesn't sound moral, legal, or ethical to me. That is across the board. That is just morally, that is just wrong. You can't do that. Okay. The lily lids dying was wrong too. That's the thing is when I, when I stand up for Karen or Crystal or Dean people out, well, what about the lily lids? As if I don't care about the lily lids. Of course I care about the lily lids. The one common denominator we all have, no matter what side of the fence you stand on this case is that family did not deserve to die. It was a horrible thing, a tragedy. It should never have happened, and it should never happen again. I have yet to meet a person on either side of the fence that thinks that that was a good thing. So when people come at me like, oh, you don't care about the family, I, it's just it just really kind <laughs> of it blows my mind.
0: It's just a, um, I don't want to say an ignorant way of thinking, but it's a lazy way to think. Um, just because you support one person doesn't mean you can't have empathy for another. Um, it's just, exactly. silly.
2: It, it is. And it's a way of, of shutting you down and making you, you know, it's a straw man argument. It's a way of making you look like you're less than, you know, these other people morally, you know, and I'm not less than, it's just, I want, you know, of course I want justice for the little that's. But justice shouldn't be a hanging judgmentality where we just take everyone down, irrespective of culpability. There are mitigating circumstances. There are things that were covered up flagrantly in this case. I mean, that's something I mean, if 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 they're not safe
0: as far as due process is concerned, then none of us are safe. And that's well, that where I stand. That's where I stand on the case. Everybody's supposed to be entitled to due process. It doesn't say anything about due process based on what the county can afford or yeah. what the convi- or what the cues can afford. And when people start
2: lying, even if it's on the even if it's the people who are on your side of the argument, if they if they're lying to you about somebody or something, you need to start asking questions. Well, what else are they lying about? You know, and this is, you know, this was a satanic cult. So this is what they did. You know, they, they stacked the bodies in the shape of a cross. Uh, they did this. That, I mean, one lie after another and everyone just well, Hey, too bad. That, that's kind of like the attitude with a lot of people. Well, too bad. Well, no, not too bad. If they're lying to you about things, you need to start questioning that. It's important. It's very important. You can't lie about people and take them down with lies and fabrications and myth and fear monitoring. i mean and that, and that was clearly done clearly done
0: i absolutely agree doug well thank you for your time and uh, i look forward to having you on maybe in a couple weeks to wrap this case up
2: thank you very much can i just say one more thing before we go
0: sure go ahead judge beckner a man
2: i respect uh d- did something i thought was really very wrong and i don't mean to toss you know trample over a man's grave. I know he passed away recently and God bless him and his family. But, um, you know, he knew they signed that plea bargain. and He knew why they signed that plea bargain. They did it under, you know, that threat that we talked about a minute ago, but he asked them at the sentencing hearing, he says, are you, and he asked each one of them, are you pleading guilty because you are guilty? Yes. Yeah. I mean, he went down, you know, Miss Howell, Ms. Sturgill. Ms. He knew darn well, he knew darn well, that why they were pleading, that they weren't pleading guilty because they were guilty. They were pleading guilty because of that plea bargain, because of the threat. We're going to kill your friends if you don't sign. That's why they were doing it. But he, he, it's like he needed to get that out of them, you know, that they were pleading guilty because they were guilty. That is not the reason. And I thought that was very wrong of him to do that. He should not have done that. That was wrong. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out there.
0: <laughs> well, Doug, I thank you for your time. And like I said, I look forward to having you back on here in a couple weeks to wrap this case up.
2: All right. Take care. God bless. And I'll talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Usually I would tell you now what we have coming for next week, but at this point, I'm just not sure. I had planned on wrapping this case up next week, but this week I received communication from several inmates at South Central prison who wanted to speak on behalf of Dean Mullins. I had these interviews planned weeks ago, but due to feared repercussions against the inmates, we canceled them. However, they have reached out to me and expressed their desire to do an interview regardless. Thursday of this week, I also received a letter from Joseph Reisner, and I'm hoping to get him to agree to tell his story as well. So next week will be a surprise episode and I look forward to you joining us for another episode of The Devil Came Knocking.